Thank you for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. How to avoid history. No one have ever found a way of avoiding history. It is upon us and around us all. The only thing when you look at the cunning, villainous faces in our class, you wonder if history may not soon be worse than ever. If the hist master go on enough, you begin to believe that death is really upon you. You have something wrong with your heart, which have stopped beating. Your jaw is stuck open and you cannot close it. Also, you're going blind. On the whole, it is better to put up with the hist lesson and draw beetles on the blotch quietly. The wise words of 1950s schoolboy Nigel Molesworth, or rather of his creators Geoffrey Willans and Ronald Searle. Now, Nigel Molesworth, one of my heroes when I was a child, was not a fan of history or of history lessons or indeed of history books. But writing for children is one of the great challenges, I think, for any writer, no matter what the genre. I've been doing it. Tom, you've been writing um, books for young adults. Young adults is basically teenagers. Is that right? So I believe. Yeah. <laughs> so, so I believe. Yeah. So you've got you've got two books coming out this week. Yeah. Yes. Um, that's the first of July. So you've uh, shamelessly shoehorned this into an episode of, of the podcast. Well, well, it's an interesting. It, it's right. Yeah, it's so there's two things to say about this podcast. <laughs> One, it is pure shameless self-promotion. naked self-promotion. And the second is it is actually a genuinely really fascinating topic that even people who have no interest in history and indeed no children often have very strong opinions about. What? How do you tell the story of the past for people, you know, in short trousers? Um, Dominic Sandbrook being sincere. Yeah, I am being well, sincere. Well, that, that's just the sincerity. And then we can get back to the self-promotion <laughs> hopefully in, um, in a second. Right. Yeah. So I've got I've got actually got the, the, the proofs of your two books that are coming out. Yes. Um, and they are on the Second World War and the Six Wives of Henry VIII. Yeah. So you're going, you're going straight in. <laughs> yeah. With, with two really obscure, with little known. obscure fields of history there. Because basically people say that you know, people complain, don't they? That Nazis um, and Tudors. <laughs> Nazis and Tudors. Hitler and Henry. And you've gone for that. Presumably that's what, that's what the kids want. Well, I think there's, uh, so yes, this is a series called Adventures in Time. And, um, yeah, when I first talked about it with the publishers of Penguin, um, they sort of said, should we do the Nazis and Tudors first? And I thought, yeah, why not? I mean, you're not going to do the Industrial Revolution and the Seven Years' War as you're opening two salvos in a campaign to kind of, you know, um, share the, the joys of the past with the nation's youngsters. Um, but they're not just being published in Britain. So that's been quite interesting. Um, for example, the Second World War one is also coming out in Germany. And, and do you have to uh, do any changes for that? No, interestingly, the German publishers said um, it's very English, <laughs> um, but they but said, you, uh, I, I, "Am I not right? I think you mentioned this to me that um, you initially began with Hitler in the trench losing his dog." Yes. So the opening of the Second World War one, um, the the first chapter, I was trying to think of a way. How how on earth are you going to tell this story of the Second World War to children who haven't done the First World War, who don't know where all the countries are and all that stuff? And I thought, well, you just start with the protagonist. With you the dog. start with the well, the dog, yeah. You start with like Hitler. Like Um And I start with Hitler as a boy. Um, 
you know, Hitler's a boy. He goes off to fight in the First World War. His shattering experience that, that, that sort of poisons his mind. Hitler turning to darkness, as it were. I mean, that's quite a familiar trajectory in children's stories. And it is the trajectory of, of Hitler's life, obviously. I mean, we had that two, um, episodes with Ian Kershaw, didn't we? And he was saying, you know, there's a, Hitler's not a monster from the beginning. He's maybe damaged or he's maybe had a traumatic childhood or whatever, but he's, but, he's not a mass murderer straight away. So taking children into that story is interesting. Right. And so you set him up with a dog. He's, he's, he's a guy with a lovable dog. Yeah. But the dog had I to think, go. And I, and I think that then your son, yeah. who's eight. Well, he was eight when he read it. Yeah. He was eight so, when he read it. So, so this is Hitler the hero. Yeah, well, so the way this works, right, I should tell them, explain the backstory. So my son's school, they were doing, um, evacuees as their sort of, as their, as their term leads topic. So, you know, they dress, had a day when they dressed up as evacuees and they, only in Britain, of course, would people do this because in any other country it would be a sort of such a traumatic experience. Whereas his school they actually put on a thing where they sang wartime songs. Um, it's just pre COVID. So it was brilliant. I loved it. Um, but he, my son complained. He said, well, we don't do enough about tanks or battles. You know, uh, the evacuee stuff is great, but I want to know about the sort of narrative of the war. So at half term, we took him to the Imperial War Museum, which for people who are not British listeners, it's this amazing museum uh, in London. Yeah, full of tanks. It was basically a museum about the world wars and Britain's experience of war in the 20th century and after. And as we, we went around the museum and he was quite enthusiastic, but in that way that children, he started to sort of flag and not, I could see he wasn't really reading all the captions and he was just tempted to start climbing on gun barrels <laughs> and whatever. Um, and I said, yeah. well, if you can go around without climbing on any more weaponry, um, when we get to the gift shop, I'll get you a book on the second world war. And there wasn't really, there wasn't really the right kind of thing. So they're, they're all kind of Osborne-y kind of books with lots of pictures or they were horrible histories, but there wasn't a really rollicking narrative. And um, I said, oh, I'm amazed that, you know, Anthony Beaver or Max Hastings or somebody hasn't done. James Holland. James Holland, exactly, hasn't done a kid's the history of the Second they, World my War. My brother has done um, Ladybird books. He's done a Ladybird book, but those are Ladybird books adults, ad- aimed at adults, exactly. Yeah, yeah. And I sort of thought, well... Yeah, you know, there's a whole market. Tom Holland will get in on this if I if I'm not careful. And I st- I just thought you could. I, I mentioned it idly to my editor. You know, you could do a whole series of you call them Adventures in Time, Cleopatra, Alexander the Great, Henry the Eighth, Second World War, and yeah, you know, he said, "Great, do it." So I did, and I got my son to read each chapter as I wrote it, and said, basically, tell me what's boring, tell me what you don't understand. Um, a good example is I had the phrase in 1929, the world economy tottered or something. He said, what's the economy? And I was like, Christ, how do you explain that? The world money system? I mean, it sounds so weak. So I had to think of another way of doing it. And Hitler and his dog was one of the key stumbling points because at the point where Hitler had his dog in the trenches, um, my son said, uh, oh, is he the hero? And I said, no, no, he's going to turn out. He's, he's going to turn out to be the villain. And he said, "Well, he can't have a dog. I mean, the hero has a dog. The villain never has right. a dog. He's right, isn't he? He was right. The dog had to go. I took the dog out. I think it was it was tipping the scales too much in Hitler's favour. So the dog had to go. Um, I could have given the dog to Churchill, I suppose. Yes, but I just took the, the black dog, dog. 
Yeah, which I is black dog. Yeah, it's depression. Well, you very um, nobly said in in your author's note, the first drafts of this book were read and edited by Arthur Sandbrook and Connolly Norman, aged eight. So any mistakes are definitely their fault. Yeah. <laughs> That's good. Yeah. yeah. Well, you've, got blame. You've, got to, you've got to have someone to blame, haven't you? Yeah. Um, yeah. Okay, well, I think that's enough self-promotion. Oh, no, what? What? We've yeah, got enough? I, th- I thought we had I, hours to fill. I, I, I think it is. But um, it's interesting, the lack of narrative accounts that you highlighted. Yeah, because we grew up with narrative accounts, didn't we? I mean, um, I mean, we've got a question from Jonathan Calder about Ladybird history books. I mean, they were always pure narrative. So for every British listener, I would imagine, to this podcast will know what we're talking about. But for the overseas listeners, they're, they're small books. What are they? They're about. Um, I've got. I've got a couple of them here. They're about. They're fifty pages long. They're little hardbacks, and they're very basic kind of um, narratives of. I mean, the ones I've got with me right now: Oliver Cromwell, Warwick the Kingmaker, James the First, and the Gunpowder Plot. And I mean, I owed so much of my understanding of history as a boy to those books. Didn't you? Were you a big Ladybird fan? Um, less so. What? To to be honest. God, um, I'm stunned so, by that. So the book, the book that I really loved uh, was the one that I, I, I when I put up um, a tweet asking for um, questions on this topic, and to illustrate it, I put up um, an illustration of my favourite book as a child, history book, which was um, a history of the world by a guy called Plantagenet Somerset Fry. Did Amazing you name. ever come across him? No, no. I, you mentioned it, and I, I'd never heard of this. Person. Okay, so he wasn't actually called Plantagenet; he was called Peter. Okay, that's he was called Plantagenet because he was a big fan of Richard the Third. Oh, he's a Ricardian. Okay, well, it, eccentric position when he was writing, I guess, in yeah. the in the sixties and seventies. Um, and he he was he was a brilliant guy because I, I didn't know this when I um, when I read it as a child, but he. Um, he was a kind of famous dandy at university. He had a, a cape and a gold top cane. Um, a, a Jeremy he, Thorpe. Uh, he was a founding member of the Liberal Democrats. Talking oh, to Jeremy Thorpe. So there is yeah. a Jeremy Thorpe. Thing yeah, there is a Jeremy that. Thorpe connection. Um, and he each year in the Times he would put in a um, uh, on the fifteenth of March he would put in a little note commemorating the death of Julius Caesar. What? <laughs> and the reason that I like the reason that I liked him. Oh, and also yeah. he he um, he he won a, a, a jackpot on a. TV quiz show. What was the Huey Green one? There was Up, um, uh, W uh, Money. W Something. Money, yeah. Was so he won, he won lots of money on that. So he was a kind of interesting guy. But his real interest was ancient history. Okay. And the reason that I liked his history of the world was that um, rather than focusing on all the stuff that the Ladybird books focused on, which yeah. was um, specifically British history, he majored on things like Sumeria and okay. the New Kingdom and... Um, medieval china and all kinds of weird stuff like that and had fabulous illustrations and basically he focused on the roman empire and who doesn't like the romans there were amazing i i can still just sitting here i can visualize them there's there's one of um nero looking out at rome on on fire um there's uh there's one of uh the roman soldiers looking up at jesus on the cross there's a battle between the romans and the gauls absolutely loved it there's um uh, the Sasanian king capturing the Roman emperor. Fabulous stuff. Um, and that's really what I loved. And I thought that the Ladybird books were a bit embarrassing. Embarrassing? Why embarrassing? A little bit. Why, embar- why were you embarrassed by the Ladybird books? This, this is I felt deranged. Slightly talk- I felt slightly talked down to by them. 
I thought I tell you what, I've I've picked a couple of my favourite bits out actually. James the first the gunpowder plot. I like Go the on. strong views. King James was not a pleasant man. Not only was he of ungainly appearance, he was also untrustworthy and deceitful. His lubberly, ungainly appearance added to prejudice against the Scots, made him unwelcome. So she's very L. Dugard Peach, who's the author of this, was very down on James the First. But do you know what he said about Guy Fawkes? Was so it Guy Fawkes, he has Guy Fawkes been killed, and then he says Thus died a man whose name has quite wrongly or mistakenly come to mean anyone of queer or foolish appearance. Guy or Guido Fawkes was neither. He was a brave man and a gentleman, a faithful friend to the limit of endurance, ready to die for the faith in which he believed. You must love that. Okay. Well, (laughs) but I think when I, because I was reading them in the 70s, I think even then they felt old fashioned. Oh, no, I think this is deranged. I think I I loved the the pure narrative elements of them. And I think, so that to me, I think there are two reasons that children get interested in history. One of them is the fascination of the very unfamiliar, the sort of curiosity about the strange and exotic worlds, you know, that you just talked about with the ancient world. Completely. And the other thing is the story, is pure story. And one of the reasons I think I like the Ladybird books was that Ladybird didn't only do history. They also did books about Robin Hood and King Arthur, who were my real passions when I was about five or six. And Peter and Jane. Well, they did John do and Peter Jane. and Jane. Yeah, John they and did Jane Peter, or whatever they did, it, was. it was. Peter and Jane. But I My remember... dog is sick. <laughs> yeah. My dog is dead. All right. All right, Mr. Cynic. So they did that. They did the King Arthur and Robin Hood. And to me, I didn't really distinguish between the stories of King Arthur, let's say, and the story of Oliver Cromwell or of James I or something. Um, and I think if you... I think to get children interested in history, it has to be about the story. There has to be a sense of narrative drama of jeopardy of character and do you know what it is I, yeah. i'm thinking about it what i resented about the ladybird books so they did one on julius caesar and the, I yeah. think the conquest of and britain Ro- julius caesar and roman britain yeah we've got julius caesar and roman britain and i thought it was going to be about julius caesar yeah and actually a lot of it was about roman britain it and was. it was all about them building roads and things villas I, d- I didn't want that i wanted julius caesar i think you can do a bit of both though tom no i, I was th- disappointed and i felt that i'd been sold you know, dodgy goods. Dodgy goods. I think there is quite a lot of riding across harsh terrain in that that particular book, and there's not enough about stabbings in the Senate chamber, yes. which is what you're after. So As you then wrote your own book on that yeah, subject. Basically, basically. Yeah, Rubicon. But what I remember um, is um, that there were huge there was there were kind of huge narrative histories of Greece and Rome in the local library that I, I just I don't think they would exist now. I, I can't mm. find them. No, but I think there was an appetite for them. I mean, I was kind of very, really struck while writing my books um, and trying bits on children that maybe because they were just coerced or because I was bribing them. They generally, children generally said, who read them said they liked the story. They liked the sense of tension. I think you have to have, if you give them kids characters, I mean, think about the appeal of Star Wars or The Hobbit or Harry Potter to children. I mean, what they like are Strong characters, well-defined. They can cope with a little bit of nuance, actually. It doesn't have to be incredibly simplistic. But a sense of urgency, a sense of pace in the narrative. I mean, actually, the weird thing is, I think, Tom, is that all those things are virtues of adult narrative histories. Um, so in a, in a way, it's not that different an exercise telling history for children. That also they like facts. Well, they like facts. Because I they know can, I did. They can share, yeah, weird facts. So, so here's a good example. Okay, um, in the Henry VIII book that I did, I had constant discussions with the editors about, about squeamish details. So about people's heads being cut off and exactly yeah. how that was done. And we had a fact there later on when Henry's enormously fat. 
about how he has this greased tube pushed up his bottom and he's given these enemas of like honey and all this kind of thing to try and ease his piles and his enormous obesity. And it just makes him more bad tempered than ever. And, um, my editor, who's, who's not by any means a squeamish man said, um, I, I wonder if this is a bit much for children, actually, you know, all this stuff about the enemas. And I gave this to about four or five children and said, what do you think? And they said, well, the, the, you know, this is basically the best bit in the whole book. <laughs> <laughs> and I think children love these kind of little curious kind of details. Why horrible histories? So horrible histories revolves. It's, it's full of kind of enemas and it's all, yeah, it's enemas, enemas and executions, basically, isn't it? It's amusing ways that people. Amusing, amusing stuff that people have done with poo. Yeah. So Horrible Histories, there's no narrative in Horrible Histories. No. It's, it's a compilation just... of kind of curious facts. And you're right. I think kids like curious facts, but I think they also, they do like a bit of drama. And so I suppose what I tried to do was to combine the, those two things. Because I remember as, obviously, I, basically, I was only interested in ancient stuff. So I would read modern stuff, but yeah. slightly under sufferance. And there were... um there are a series of books by a guy called Peter Connolly, who was a brilliant illustrator and a very, very serious historian of, of um, the ancient military. And he did a book called The, the Roman Army, and then brilliantly, The Greek Army. Yeah. And he did one on Hannibal and the Carthaginians. And it combined, um, he, he would do little, he, so he'd tell the stories of various um, periods of Greek and Roman history at the top. And then he'd give you um, lots and lots of facts about weaponry. And then he'd and then he'd do great illustrations, um, including people being stabbed with spears. Yeah, and the combination for me was a complete winner. And I that that kind of sense of of getting a lot of facts with great illustrations, I also like that. But that raises a really interesting question about violence, doesn't it, Tom? So we had a question from about from Lauren Markovich about this. I'll read you the whole question because it was over two tweets. Um, and it's, it's quite an interesting one. She says, my son was a voracious reader as a child, fascinated and insatiably curious about history. Negotiating what was appropriate for him, re-genocide, torture, warfare, etc., was challenging. I think we managed to navigate our way somehow, but there were a few calls from the school. We didn't want to sugarcoat or obfuscate, and his line of questioning was relentless. So while a parent can read their child... Um, a parent can read their child and sort this out with some degree of success. But when you're writing history for a broader child audience, how does one approach this? I mean, I think. Okay. That's a- so that's the question for you because obviously you have to include the Holocaust. You've written about the second world war. Yeah. How do, how, so how do you deal with that? Well, that was a really, so the other, the early, the other stuff in the second world war I felt was kind of doable, but the Holocaust was a much more difficult question. And I thought there were, there were in that, the Holocaust chapter, there had to be a whole chapter on it. Um, and, I, I had sort of three strategies, really. Uh, one was to, I mean, one of the great things, by the way, about writing the, the, these books for a very, I mean, we're talking about children eight to 12. So often it's the very first time they encounter these stories. So I could tell stories without any fear that they would be kind of cliche. Well, they are cliches, but there wouldn't be any fear that children would recognize them as such because it might be the first time they've encountered them. So I said to my editor, well, should I shy away from Anne Frank? And he said, well, no, it's mad to not to do Anne Frank. She's the, you know, it's a, such a great story. So the whole chapter is framed around Anne Frank's experience. But within that, the two other things I did were, one is to give the overview. And I think the only way to do that and to talk about Auschwitz and so on is to do it complete for children, is to just do it completely starkly. And, you know, not to indulge in the kind of pornography of violence, 
not mm. to kind of tug the heartstrings unnecessarily because that just seems exploitative and unnecessary. I think you can just tell the facts very plainly. This is what happened. This is how many people died. You know, it's an incredibly dark and evil chapter. Um, but I don't think you need to kind of take the children into the gas chambers kind of in no. a sort of, in a, no. in a sort of, as I say, an exploitative way. Um, but the other way I thought it would be a, an interesting way, thing to bring in would be, um, it doesn't have to, I mean, obviously it's an incredibly dark and, and distressing chapter of history, but there are, as it were, chinks of light within it. So I did, for example, the stories of people who saved Jews, um, the kind of Oscar Schindler yeah. type stories or Nicholas Winton, the stockbroker, um, who, who got lots of, um, children out to Britain. Um, but I also told that's what the, I that's think. That's the one with that amazing. That's life. That's life with all the people around him who turn out to be the children that he'd rescued. Yeah. And actually, if anyone's not seen that, do, do, uh, it's a real tearjerker. So they bring him onto the show and yeah, yeah, I won't spoil it, but you can find it on YouTube if you search for Nicholas Winton. But the other story that I also find actually real tearjerker and I found incredibly moving writing it, um, is the story about what happened in Denmark, about how basically the vast majority of Dane, Denmark's Jewish population, they were hidden. There was a small population, but they were hidden by their neighbors. And then they were smuggled to Sweden in kind of I, fishing boats and, and yeah, so on. I, I remember going to the um, Holocaust Museum in maybe Washington. I think it must have been Washington. And um, it was the only time I actually cried in the whole museum because the rest of the time I just felt, you know, deadened by it, overwhelmed yeah. by it, stunned by it. Uh, and that because it, and they showed one of the boats. They had one of the boats on the wall that that um, had had taken the refugees across to across the sea. And be- because it was about people doing good, suddenly you felt licensed to. Yeah, yeah. You know, I totally, I totally uh, buy that. So I put that in, and, I, and and while I was writing it, you know, condensing this story into kind of eight hundred words or something. And finding one or two characters who could tell it. Okay. Um, and there's a story, it's a student, I think his name is Wilhelm Lindt. And he finds a, in the, in the great movement of the crowd towards the key, there's a girl who's separated from her parents, like a little girl, and she's crying. And he puts her on the handlebars of his bike and he, he rides down to the key and reunites with her parents. And they put her on the boat and off she goes to Sweden. And it's an incredibly heartening and moving story. And he says himself, he he was crying as the boat pulled away and he didn't know whether he was crying that they got so many people out or whether he was crying with shame almost that this was happening at all. And I think, you know, those are the kinds of stories that stick in people's minds. And actually yeah. so much about getting children interested in history is through these individual moments, isn't it? Okay. Well, I think that's a, we, we should have a break at this point. Um, when we come back, perhaps we could um, look again at uh, the issue of violence, which I guess children maybe particularly little boys um particularly keen on i know that i was um (laughs) and look at that question so we'll be back in we'll be back in a few minutes I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, 
Was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. He was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? (laughs) Well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii, okay? And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy, too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics U.S. wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, welcome back to The Rest is History. We are um, talking history for children. Um, And before the break, we were talking about, well, Dominic's written a book on the Second World War, and we were talking about how do you write about something as as terrible and monstrous as the Holocaust for for children. But I guess one of the reasons why um, the Second World War is is a raw subject is because it is so close. Yeah. So... um, I, I mentioned the um, the Plantagenet Somerset Fry book, and there's a sequence in that, as I, I said, of the Romans fighting the Gauls. And I like that because it matched up with Asterix, which was a, one of the kind of gateway drugs for me into yeah. into history and particularly ancient history. And of course, one of the things about Asterix is that um, it, it features a you know it features a Roman occupation of of Gaul, and there are clearly echoes there of the Nazi occupation of France. Um, yeah. At the time, I had no idea that, that these, you know, play was being made with that. Um, but it is also drawing on the historical experience that Gaul underwent when the Romans conquered it. And in Asterix, nobody dies. The, the worst that happens is that somebody might end up in a tree with stars <laughs> going round, you know, uh, going round the head. But of course, the reality is, uh, you know, according to Plutarch, Caesar conquered, uh, Caesar killed a million Gauls and enslaved another million. And yeah. To be honest, for most of my childhood, I was completely oblivious to that. And I think that one of the reasons why I I enjoyed ancient history as a child was the feeling that it was simultaneously very, very exciting and glamorous and violent and frightening. But it was also kind of safe because it was distant and removed. Yeah, yeah. And I think this, you know, the same was true with dinosaurs, my kind of fascination with dinosaurs, that they were glamorous and, and terrifying. And I wouldn't want to be with the Tyrannosaur, but I would never be with the Tyrannosaur because they were extinct. And in the same way, I could kind of thrill to the spectacle of, you know, these amazing drawings by Peter Connolly. He did a fabulous illustration of Alexander crossing the Granicus and of the Spartans at Thermopylae and Battle of Salamis and so on. And it was thrilling because this was so distant that all I really had to deal with was the glamour of it. Yeah. And I think that that 
I, I don't know whether that was something that you felt ever experienced, but I, th- but, I, but thinking about it, I think it really explains for me why uh, ancient history and medieval history had a particular purchase on my imagination. And now when I, about when I write about it as an adult, why I feel it's so important to convey actually a sense of, of the brutality of it. And the fact that people did die. As, you yeah. know, it wasn't it wasn't like Asterix. Well, people Tom, suffered horribly. I think this is an absolutely fascinating question. In some ways, we're kind of spiraling away from the issue of children's fiction because I absolutely agree with you that I think there's a kind of a strange statute of limitations almost on on, on our sympathy or empathy or, or whatever. So I I think it is fascinating how, you know, um, an atrocity in the 20th century, um, even one where the death toll is not especially high, will, will, will call forth enormous reserves of kind of pity from us. But, you know, you'll read about, I don't know, Basil the Bulgar Slayer or something. But you don't you know, read about him, do you? Killing <laughs> loads of people. But you but can, Julius you read Caesar about, you do, or Alexander the Great. So there was a, there was a Ladybird book on Alexander the Great. No, but I'm saying as, as an adult, even people do this. Yeah, okay, as an yes. adult, yeah. I mean, I don't think it's actually that different, you see. Now, for a child, uh, for a child even more so, a child you'll read um, accounts of battles and, um, you know, assassinations and things. And, and because you're right, it all happens at one remove. And if it happens, the further back it happens, the less likely, the more likely you are to see it as purely the stuff of a storybook. And not to feel troubled by it in any way. I mean, that's true, I think, of children's stories more generally, history or not. I mean, if you watch a Star Wars film, how many people die? You know, I mean, they're mo- how many people died on the Death Star? Or, you know, in Tolkien, how many people are killed in the battles? Do you feel a great what sense of... What happens to the baby orcs? Yes. Yeah, well, exactly. I mean, do, you, do children, children, I mean, especially little boys... I mean, people can argue about whether it's right or whatever, and that's the subject for a whole podcast series in itself. Um, but they enjoy an awful lot of, of violence. I mean, you didn't merely have to watch boys in a playground to know that there is that, that urge. And well, I think I, it'd be weird not to, well, we live in, we live in a human world, not a perfect world. But I think there's a further kind of shifting of the kaleidoscope on that. Um, both between childhood and adulthood, but also um, changing perspectives from certainly when I was a child and now. And we've got two questions, one from Roman Mihar, who says, what do you think the future of children's histories will be post-woke? The older (laughs) children's histories are amazing for their breadth and width, but will this survive a focus on the lives of each disadvantaged group and their lived experience, etc.? And then from Richard Goldstein, what do children teach adults about history? When I refer to Indians, my son retorts they're only called Indians because Columbus thought he was in India. I found myself less hostile to the revision Native American when advocated by a 14-year-old. And I guess that, um, so I, I was reading about the Ladybird books in preparation for this. Yeah. And apparently, um, even in the... Uh, the 1970s um for instance there's one on walter raleigh and in 1957 um you see him launching in a, a an attack on um uh people in i guess el dorado or whatever um the orinoco yeah. wasn't it? he went up i think um and the perspective you're given in the illustration is of raleigh and then this was reissued in 1980 and the perspective is that of of the people seeing raleigh come 
um, so you're seeing Raleigh through their eyes in the illustration or in the text. Yeah, in the illustration. Right. In the illustration. Yeah. So, and I guess that um, one of the things that that probably has changed is that. Um, so we're going to be talking um, to Satnam Sangera about uh, the British Empire in our next episode. But one of the things that that I'm sure has changed is that um, a lot of imperial history was couched in terms of adventure of. Yeah. British adventurers, be it Raleigh, be it Captain Cook, um, be it General Gordon or whoever, going off and having adventures yes. in, in exotic, far-flung places. Sort of the man who would be king style. The man who would be king. Yeah. Uh, and obviously that's more complicated now. Yeah, it is. And I think that's actually a really interesting um, subject. So a future book in this series, this Adventures in Time series, is going to be about uh, the Conquistadors. And when we were talking about it we we had a big conversation about you know who's who's telling the story who's who are the who are the, who heroes? Are the heroes who are the yeah. you know and you know i i felt i mean i haven't actually written it yet so i'm just sort of jumping ahead but um i i felt that the guys getting on the ships and going across has to be the start of the story because to a child that is immediately did you did you not think uh, after talking to camilla townsend yeah about the aztecs that actually the the journey of the aztecs from what it is but you you don't have the sources to be able to tell it in a kind of do i mean i don't think you do and i think the story of the spaniards going on the ships how many children's stories start with a voyage you know i think that's a great story but the aztecs but i think then when they get there you have to then give the perspective of the people to whom there's these bunch of weird bearded lunatics who pitched up from God knows where, which you wouldn't have done or or it would have been much less likely 20 or 30 years ago. So I think there's a way to reconcile adventure with multiple perspectives and um, with a bit of nuance and, and not telling it as a sort of purely moralistic adventure story. I mean, do you think so? So we've got a question. Um, yes, from Theobald Tiger. Have to confess that H.E. Marshall, our island story, lit the spark for me. Uh, this is talking about 1955. At least she got the Canut story the, way, the right way round. I guess that's stopping the waves. A bit like corporal punishment, it didn't do me any lasting harm, <laughs> but I'd hardly recommend it today. But great illustration. <laughs> yeah, uh, actually, I mean, actually, our island story is surprisingly progressive. Um, quite yeah. a lot of stuff about there's a woman writing it i think she was from new zealand um i think she slightly had an outsider's perspective on yeah henrietta marshall kind of the mainstream um but I, you know our island story is kind of shorthand for a particular um way of writing yes, children's is. history that's rooted in a sense of um i guess you know the, the, the glories of british achievement and yeah i mean i had a book that my grandparents gave me as a child um, I think it used to be theirs. It was by somebody called Arthur Michael John, and it was published in I think nineteen o two, and it was it was brilliant. Actually, <laughs> I shouldn't say this, but it, was, it went through century by century. And at the end of each century, it said it had a chapter. It had unfailingly had a chapter called "Great Men," and it <laughs> yes. just told you yes. the, the twenty yes. great men that you needed to know. You know, the, the Lord were there Salisbury. Any women? Never, there was never a woman. Boudicca, you know, surely, and they really were all the sort of generals that are in Trafalgar yes. Square. I mean, it was um, now now. Listen, I mean, I think history books always reflect their times. They I mean, do, that's... but 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 more than that, do they not reflect myths? So yeah, of course. There's I mean... there's a kind of, uh, to, in a sense, to 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 make history 
accessible to children, you have to mythicize it to a degree. To a degree. And the likelihood is that that myth will go with the grain of the broader national myth that is being propagated at the time. So that's our a very island, good point. Yeah. So our island story, the, the clue is in the word island. It's all about the navy. It's about set in a silver sea. Yeah. Uh, so, so you have myths like the idea of, you know, Alfred the Great founding the Royal Navy, implying that there's kind of continuity from the time of Alfred right the way through the Middle Ages. And that in that sense, you know, Nelson and Jutland and, and everything yeah. is all, it's all part of a continuous narrative. But now we have new myths. Yes, I guess we do. I mean, actually, Tom, we had a lot of questions about this, about how do you, you know, stories being distorted for children and all that stuff. So the lady, a good example of that is the Oliver Cromwell. We talked about this with Paul Lay. The Oliver Cromwell Ladybird book starts with two stories that are just not true. Yeah. One of them is, um, he's stolen by a monkey as a boy. And the other is a that baby. Charles the Foot. Uh, the other that Charles the First visits his house and they have a fight when they are sort of eight years old or something. And, and those Cromwell, are the two facts about Oliver Cromwell. That, that all probably, children should learn. Yeah. <laughs> but they're no, probably but I mean, uppermost in my brain. I but, can't get rid of them. They're like floaters. But the thing is, I just is, can't flush them away. That 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 that's, so those stories get a child interested in history, and you've got ample time to debunk them later. I mean, in the Second World War book, for example, I have a chapter about Dunkirk. Now, I could have gone in and said, the way to tell this story is to say there were some little ships involved, but they weren't as important as the big destroyers. <laughs> um, and I just thought, who the hell is, what child, what sane person thinks that's the way to interest a child? The way to interest a child is to say, I'll take one little ship. You know, it's basically the inspiration for the little ship in, in Dunkirk. It's a very famous story. It's a man called Charles Lightoller. He's retired. Um, he's, I think he's been on the Titanic. He's escaped. He's retired now. He's got this little boat that's his pride and joy. He takes it across to Dunkirk. He fills it with all the men. They're under fire by the Germans. They escape planes shooting at them and they get all the way back and he unloads them. And it's just an incredibly heartening story. And it fits in with J.B. Priestley's stuff on the radio that he does a little later about the little ships. That is, to me, the obvious way to get a nine-year-old who maybe doesn't have a colossal amount of knowledge about history or great investment in history to get them involved. And there's plenty of time later in life to debunk to, you know, we, we had um, Roger well, Clark talking about ghosts, didn't he? Didn't we? And he said in that people are always prefer the bunk to the debunk. And there's room for both. I think. Okay. Well, on that education. note, question from Mikolaj Kishka. Mikolaj. Mikolaj. Sorry. Mikolaj. Um, is children's history always propaganda? No, I would say, because I think propaganda, propaganda, my answer to that would be that propaganda only permits of one interpretation. I mean, that's why it is propaganda. Whereas I think you can write a children's history that has room for, that, that hints at disagreement or debate. Um, so I wrote one book that's coming out in before Christmas about Alexander the Great. Um, and there's there's bits in that where I say, you know, some people said Alexander did this. Others said he did that. I think you have to give a sense of uncertainty from time to time. You know, some people thought Churchill was this. Some people think Churchill was something else. And I think that makes it different from propaganda to sort of say so that the child can think, well, there are different views about this and maybe they there isn't one right yeah, answer. No, that's good. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. Yeah, um, but I think one thing that I children do that. not give a damn about, 
and understandably, they don't give a damn about historiography. They don't really give a damn about sources. They just want to crack on and tell the story. And you need to, I mean, that's one thing that's different from writing about You need to make up your mind. It's a bit like being a newspaper columnist, actually. You need to make up a mind, make up your mind and just go for it and tell one version of the story as much as possible. And you can have gray areas, but it's got to be, you've got, you know, there's got to be, um, a goodie. Well, I, just to give people um, a, a flavour from Dominic's book on Henry VIII, was he a mischievous, fun-loving little boy or a fat, greedy, brooding invalid, a sportsman, an art lover, a bully or a braggart, a strong ruler who stood up for England or a selfish tyrant who tore it apart? What's the answer? I think that that is the note on which to end, isn't it? Yeah, leave that, leave that hanging. But you know what, we're going, Tom, to, we're going to do an episode on Henry VIII fairly soon. And you, you have, can, you have, can give the we answer. Are, to we that. are going to come up on that. But before we go, have you not promised one of our listeners that you will ask her a question? Oh, yes, I have. Yes, I have. Sorry. Um, Annie, Annie Scott. Scott. Annie, I hope you remember who it was who remembered your question. Yes. Not the person who had made the empty promise on Twitter, <laughs> yes. but the person yes. who really cares about the Yes, audience. I'm publicly shamed. <laughs> um, well, actually, the reason that, the reason that um, I didn't ask this is because it's actually about history in schools. And, it's a big topic, think, but maybe we I should think, hint at the answer now so that yeah, Annie th- gets her, Annie gets her, and then we can come back to it later on. So I so think Annie- we're going to do a subject, we're going to do a whole podcast on um, history and education. Um, but Annie's question is, um, what history should be taught in school and should teachers of other subjects put their subject into its historical context? Hashtag typical teacher question. But I promised, he, Paul and Tom promised he'd answer and I almost didn't. So what history, come on, Tom, three things that we should do in schools. Oh, I think the history of Christianity, the history oh, of the uh, fall of the Roman Republic, and uh, obviously the Persian Wars. Yeah, see, my answer would be, <laughs> I think probably we should do the um, last years of the, well, probably the first years of the 1970s. Yes. The <laughs> last years of the 1970s and the first years of the 1980s. No, I actually am going to answer it properly. Um, I think people should do, We everybody knows who's listened to this podcast that we both think children should learn about the 17th century because it's so brutal. Yeah, so I think they that. should also learn about... But when you say children, what do you mean? I mean, what's the definition of a child? What age are we talking about? <laughs> I think everyone knows what a child is. No, I don't. Because, <laughs> because are you talking, um, you know, primary school? Um, well, that's uh, a good... First that's year, a secondary really, school? That's a, a really difficult question. Yeah, uh, that's A-level. a very... Uh, um, uh, uh, I think... I think, you're obviously, you're talking about different things at different times, aren't you? You're talking yeah, for, so that's for why smaller children. That's why it's complicated. It's all and Your the, attempt to try and... Yeah, get this yeah. into a, a single quick answer. Okay, it's so three things. I think they should start. They should do the Romans. Yes, obviously. I think they should do the seventeenth century. Yes, and they should finish up by doing twentieth century. Oh, twentieth century what? China. Uh, no, I think they should do maybe a smash with the world wars, and they should get into the Labour government of the mid seventies. And um, <laughs> <laughs> then I'll the Jeremy Thorpe scandal. Yeah, the Jeremy Thorpe scandal. Exactly. <laughs> On the back of our, our colossally successful Jeremy Thorpe podcast, um, I think people will all be children. I, I believe even now across Britain are queuing up to buy books about Rinka. <laughs> well, on that bombshell. Yeah. Um, great. Okay. Well, I think we sorted out. Um, now we can have a second stab. You can, now I'll <laughs> let you finish the podcast. Well, I mean, I think I think basically that, that our inability to answer that question in any way seriously shows that we do need an entire episode on history and we education. Do. So we'll we'll stack that one up. Um, yeah. and Annie, uh, my huge apologies for almost forgetting you. Please do send us more questions okay. when that topic comes up. And I promise I won't that time around. Um, but you should also plug the books one more time, Tom. 
Uh, yeah, so uh, Dominic. It's shocking that uh, I have to remind God, them. You know, Dominic's got these adventure in time, Six Wives of Henry VIII and the Second World War. Yeah. I mean, who cares? Who knows? <laughs> I mean, it's not as if you've never plugged your own. Come on. <laughs> I do it slightly more subtly. Um, well, listeners will be the judge of that. Um, and yeah, so uh, it's it's um, there's a, there's a lovely the, almost the best bits in it are the uh, author's note at the end, um, and I think that uh, anyone wondering whether to get this for their child, it's the very last um, paragraph in the um, the book on the Six Wives of Henry VIII. Dominic's dedication to his son. Above all, thank you to Arthur who read every chapter as I wrote it, solemnly ticking every battle, every massacre and every severed head and giving me extra points for hangings, drawings and quarterings. I could not have asked for a more enthusiastic or more bloodthirsty reader. Who would not want to read that? Thanks ever so much. Bye-bye. See you next time. Bye. Thanks for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, please sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com.